Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible is open up to Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Hebrews chapter four is where we're going to begin momentarily, and I'll encourage you to be getting a Bible out and be finding Hebrews chapter four as well as we get ready to spend these next few minutes together in the pages of God's Word. It is great to see everybody this morning. What a great crowd we have in attendance. What an encouragement it is to get to stand up here and to look out and to see all of your faces, and not just to see you, but to be with you and to be encouraged by you in this hour of worship together. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here. Got even some first-time guests. We're really glad that you've come our way. Got some folks that are technically guests, but we consider them family nonetheless. Glad that you're here today as well. Hope that as we worship together, that number one, we are drawing closer to the Lord. Number two, that we are drawing closer with one another. And thirdly, in turn, all of that works together to help us draw one step closer to our eternal goal of heaven. That's what this is all about. Right now, it is Hebrews the fourth chapter. I am reading in verse 15, as the Hebrew writer speaks about Jesus, our great high priest. He says in Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I don't know about the rest of you, but riding on an elevator is not exactly my most favorite thing to do in the world. And the reason for that is it doesn't have anything to do with the elevator itself. About I know some people get kind of queasy getting on elevators and the motion of the elevator going up and down and the, all of that sort of stuff. That's not really what bothers me. What I find awkward and what I find difficult about riding in elevators is riding in them with other people. Imagine you go to visit somebody at the hospital and you need to take the elevator to get to their floor, to get to their room. Chances are, you're probably going to get on that elevator, you're going to be taking a ride with a stranger, or two, or three, or four, or maybe even more. And I've got to tell you, I just always find that to just be very awkward and very uncomfortable. Here I am in this small, enclosed space with people that I did not choose to be with, I don't know them. They don't know me. I might think they're kind of strange. They probably think I'm very strange. And now we're all together. We're going to take this journey with one another. And I realize it's a a 30-second ride, a 60-second ride, a couple of minute stops. But we are. We're going to take a trip. We're going to take a journey together. And in fact, on the way, on the way up or on the way down, we might even pick up some additional passengers to join us in this ride. And that's just strange to me. And it's just made all the more difficult by the kinds of people that are oftentimes in the elevator. Here comes a guy into this confined space, and he's just rocking some really bad body odor, and that creates a weirdness in the in the box. Or maybe here comes a lady into the elevator, and she's talking on her cell phone, and she's just speaking loud enough for the dead to rise, and just doesn't even consider the other people on there. Or somebody brings a kid onto the elevator, and the kid thinks the elevator's a video game, and he presses every button on the wall all at once. You've experienced that kind of thing before. It's just difficult. We've got all these varying personalities, and we're cooped up together, and we've got to try to figure out a way to get along. For this journey, however long or however short it might be, we got to figure out how to get along and work together. Well, in many ways, I think that that elevator ride serves as an apt metaphor for what it is like sometimes in a family. Families are people that in many ways are stuck together, thrust together for this short journey together. And sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes it's a struggle to be all cooped up together with them. 
You just think about it. Generally speaking, generally speaking, you don't get to choose your family. Now, I'm certainly thankful that God chose my mother and my father for me. But I didn't get any say in that. The Lord did not consult me about that. I got no say in that. That was not my choice. In a very real sense, my parents, they didn't get a choice in what they were getting when they got me. They didn't know what they were getting until September the 1st, 1980. And I made my arrival. I burst onto the scene. And at that time, I stepped foot on their elevator. And for the last 38 years, they've had to try to figure out how to work along and work with me. I didn't have any choice with my siblings either. I love my siblings. Glad the Lord gave them to me. But I didn't get any say in that. Didn't have any choice. February of 1982, my brother Luke, he got on the elevator with us. August of 1984, my brother Aaron, he jumps on the elevator. October of 85, my brother Ben, he gets on the elevator. It's kind of getting cramped in here, don't you think? And for all of these years since then, we've had to try to figure out how to take that ride together. My wife, she didn't get to choose her in-laws. Now, she chose me. But when she chose to ride the elevator of life with me, she just kind of got stuck with all the other crazy McKibbins and all the folks that come along with that. It just was kind of part of the package. And the same thing goes for my in-laws and for all the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and the grandparents and all the other wacky and crazy relatives that are all packed together in this tight little space here and we're trying to figure out how to cooperate and how to communicate with one another as we journey throughout this life. Here's the difference though in that hospital elevator ride and the family elevator ride. When people get off of the elevator at the hospital, there's a pretty good chance I'm never going to see those people again. But that's not how it works in a family, is it? We hop on the elevator of life with family and it's not just a 60 second ride, is it? No, it's a long ride. Years and years, decades and decades. And since it is a long ride, we want that ride to be as pleasant and enjoyable as possible. We want it to be smooth sailing. We want it to be problem free and bump free. We want our family dynamic to be like what we saw on television years ago. Those television families like the Ingalls or like the Waltons, or the Cleavers, or even the Bradys. We'd be fine with that. We want our family gatherings and get-togethers to look like that Norman Rockwell painting. Everything's just so perfect. There's peace. There's unity. There's laughter there. There's smiles. There's joy there. And yet, all too often, all too often it doesn't work out that way, does it? Because sometimes in families we are stuck with difficult people. We're stuck with some abrasive personalities. We're stuck with people who are poor communicators. We're stuck with folks who have very messy lives. And they bring all of that into the elevator and it makes being together as a family, it makes it hard sometimes. Maybe it's a dad who just keeps hounding you about when are you going to get a real job? Or maybe it's a mother who's always comparing you to a sibling, and as a result, it makes you feel very inadequate and like you can't ever measure up. Maybe it's an in-law. we got some in-laws here today who are wondering, why in the world did my child marry you? What? I pointed right at Mitchell. You noticed I did that intentionally. (laughs) I think all of us, to some degree, we've experienced that kind of thing. We experience that in our families, and guess what? It hurts. It does. It brings sorrow It brings pain. It brings stress to our lives. And to complicate things even further, oftentimes that pain that we experience in family, oftentimes it's the result of family members who are not 
Christians. Family members who are not trying to follow Jesus Christ. They're not trying to live their lives according to the Word of God. People with whom we are spiritually incompatible. Maybe, yeah, we've got a few things in common with them, but on this and this and who we are as disciples of Jesus, man, we're, we're polar opposites. We're nothing like them. And so since our values and our priorities and our outlook on life, it's so different than theirs, unfortunately, unfortunately, that's where the rub comes in. That's where some friction is caused. That's where turmoil happens. I know there are some people here who are very much looking forward to the holiday season here over the course of the next week or so. You're looking forward to the chance to get to be with your families and spend time with them. But I also know that there are others who are dreading this time of year. Because they know what it's going to be like. They know that when they get into that elevator box with their family, they know that it's going to be unpleasant, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to be a difficult ride. What can we do about that? Where could maybe we turn to for some guidance and for some direction? Well, what if I told you this morning that Jesus could help us here? Would you believe me? That passage we just read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says... That Jesus can sympathize with most anything that we experience in this life. That Jesus understands the struggles that we face because He's been there and He's done that. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that that even includes dealing with difficult family members. It may surprise you to know that Jesus had a difficult family. In fact, some of you may be being surprised right now to even learn that Jesus had a family at all. But He did. Jesus had a mother and a father and brothers and sisters. And in many ways, Jesus probably had more conflict and more trouble with his relatives than any of us can even begin to imagine. Which is why, for the, I believe, 15th time this year, I'm going to invite you and I'm going to invite me to spend some time with Jesus. Of all of the dysfunctional families that we could look at and learn from in the Bible, I believe that really we can do no better than to consider the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you were to say, Lord, you just don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to have family members, flesh and blood relatives. They mistreat me. They take me for granted. They misunderstand me. In fact, sometimes they're just outright hostile toward me. Lord, you don't know how difficult that is. What Jesus is going to say is He's going to say, Oh, my child, but I do. I do know. Jesus knows all about that. And He is able to sympathize with your frustrations and your difficulties more than you can even know. Maybe you're right about at this point, somebody's maybe thinking, Joshua, what in the world are you talking about? You know, what exactly did Jesus have to deal with in His family? Well, let's just read a little bit. Let's just work in the Gospels for a minute or two here. Look at Luke chapter 2. In Luke the second chapter, let's just begin to kind of stack up some passages. As we read about Jesus and His family. In Luke chapter 2, this is Jesus at a young age. This is Jesus at the age of 12. And He is in Jerusalem with His parents to observe the Passover feast. And as far as I can tell, I need to just kind of say this right now. As far as I can tell... Jesus seemed to have the support of his mother Mary and his father Joseph. We don't know everything about the relationship that Jesus had with his earthly parents. We maybe know a little bit more about his relationship with Mary than we do with Joseph. But it does seem that his parents were mostly supportive of their very special son, and they realized he was a special son. However, having said that, that doesn't mean that they always understood 
what Jesus was doing or what He was all about. And so, for example, we read here in Luke chapter 2, you remember that Jesus, He gets lost, so to speak. They leave for the Passover to head back home and Jesus isn't with them. What in the world? we got to go find our son. Pick up in Luke 2 verse 46. In Luke 2 and verse 46, after three days, they found Him in the temple. And He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard Him were amazed at His understanding and His answers. And when His parents saw Him, they were astonished. And His mother said to Him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I, we have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for Me? Did you not know that I must be in My father's house? You might have a footnote that says, Don't you know that I must be about My father's business? Then verse 50, And they did not understand the saying that He spoke to them. Even here at an early age, Jesus' family, they didn't understand Him. They didn't get it. They didn't get what all this mission was about and what He was doing. The things that He said, the things that He was about the business of and He was trying to accomplish. They just didn't get that. They just didn't understand. Can you relate to that frustration? Here you try to do something that's good, and you try to do something that's right, and folks, even folks in your own families, they, they just completely misunderstand that. Maybe they question your motives about that. Maybe they even assume the worst about what you've done. Jesus knows what that's like. Or how about Jesus and His relationship with His siblings? I said something a moment ago about His siblings. Look at me in John chapter 7. Mary and Joseph had other children. How did these other children get along with their older brother Jesus? Well, in John chapter 7, Jesus is now an adult. His earthly ministry is in full swing. People, of course, are amazed at His miracles and at His teaching. But how do His brothers and sisters feel about Him? John 7 tells us, John 7 verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. But He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So His brothers, and actually your Bible might have a footnote that that's brothers and sisters, They said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, you should show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. These brothers and sisters that Jesus had, they did not believe in him. In fact, that statement there in verse 5 really helps you to understand the tone with which they spoke in verses 3 and 4. Because what these brothers and sisters are saying in verses 3 and 4, this is mockery. This is sarcasm. Yeah, Jesus, go to Judea. Yeah, that is a great idea. Go up there. Those people up there, they're going to love you. It's going to be great. You should go up there and show them and tell them everything that you know. These guys are not encouraging Jesus in His work. No, they're ridiculing the work that He is doing. Can you relate to that? you know what that's like in family? When the people who ought to be your biggest supporters, when they don't believe in you, when they do not instill confidence in you, they're not there to pat you on the back, but instead they're there to scoff and to belittle and to discourage. Man, that hurts. That stings when it comes from the people who ought to be closest to you. People that you grew up with. People that you spent time with. Jesus knows what that's like. He knows what that hurt is all about. Or how about we take that up another notch. Look in Mark now, in Mark chapter 3. 
In Mark chapter 3, Jesus' popularity at this point, it is reaching extraordinary heights. So much so that we are told in Mark chapter 3 and verse 20 that He went home, but the crowd gathered again so that He couldn't even eat. I mean, got so many people following Jesus at this point, He couldn't even find the time to eat dinner. Look at verse 21. But when His family heard it, they went out to seize Him. For they were saying... He is out of his mind. Can you hear these brothers and sisters? Mom, Jesus is off the deep end. You should hear what people in town are saying about him. You know, somebody came up to me the other day and they said, you ought to tune about your brother. You ought to get him under control. You ought to shut him up. And I don't know what to do. He's acting like a crazy person. He's acting like a lunatic. And you know what? It's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing to all the rest of us. Do you see it there? Jesus' family was ashamed of Him. No doubt the zeal that He demonstrated, that that probably caused them to be a little bit uneasy. The way that Jesus was ruffling the feathers of the religious establishment at the time, that probably made them a little bit uncomfortable. And so instead of being proud of their brother's courage and his convictions, they were instead mortified. You ever have loved ones treat you that way? Maybe they're embarrassed to even be seen with you in public. Ashamed to be identified as being related to you. Maybe even your fervor and your commitment to the Lord is so strong that it's just off-putting to them. Boy, they, they see that you're all about this and you're not so much about that out there that, that just that's just weird to them. And they think that you're just a nut. You're just a religious zealot. You know what that's like? You've been on the receiving end of any of that kind of treatment? Our Lord has. He knows what that's like coming from family. Let me show you one more on this connection. Look in Luke again, in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, this is Jesus now back in the city of Nazareth. This is, this is where He grew up. This is the place where people would have known Him and they would have known His family very intimately, would have known Him in a very personal sort of way. That maybe when Jesus first walked into town, people would have said, Hey, look! It's the carpenter's kid! That's Jesus! Look, he's all grown up now. He's got a beard and everything. Man, look at him there! I remember back when you know he'd be helping his dad in the shop. And I mean, he used to play with my kid when they were younger. And there's Jesus! These are the people who should have been the most warm and welcoming and receptive when Jesus made His return. And so Jesus does. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He enters into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. And he gets up to read from the Scriptures. He reads from Isaiah, the 61st chapter. And at the conclusion of reading that prophecy, Jesus says in verse 21, What you have just heard, I am the fulfillment of that. I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. How do you think that went over with the people there in the synagogue that day? Drop down to verse 28. When they heard these things... All who were in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he was able to get away. Can you believe that? What a horrible scene this is. Jesus' own neighborhood friends, they tried to kill him, shove him off a cliff. Did you notice, though, something that was missing from that verse? Here Jesus is back in His hometown. Did you know there's something glaringly obvious that's just not said there? 
Verse 29, what that verse ought to read, is it ought to say they brought him to the brow of the hill so that they could throw him down the cliff, but Jesus' brothers came and they stood up for him. That's what verse 29 ought to say. But it doesn't. And why? Because when Jesus was in trouble, his brothers, his brothers were not there to come to his defense. And this is just one example. They did not vouch for him. They did not have his back, so to speak. And that's probably due to the fact that they didn't understand him. They didn't believe in him. They were ashamed to be associated with him. Has that ever happened to you? Here you're dealing with something and you're just sure that, alright, maybe my friends, I don't know if I can count on them. My coworkers, I'd love to have their support. And I don't know if I can count on them. But you know what? At the very least, I know my family, they're going to be there. I can count on them. They're going to be there right by my side. But then when the critical moment comes that you need them the very most, they are nowhere to be found. Nowhere in sight whatsoever. Now you are left to your thoughts. and You are disappointed. and You are despondent and you are hurt. I'm saying to you this morning, the Bible is saying this morning, that Jesus has felt that pain. As soon as we start swapping stories about all of our horrible family experiences, Jesus is going to intervene in the conversation. He's going to tap us on the shoulder and He's going to say, Hey guys, i got some stories of my own. I understand about that. I had some difficult relatives too. I know where you're coming from. Which prompts the question that we really want to know the answer to. And that is, Jesus, well, how did you do it? How did you deal with the unpleasantness that sometimes come whenever we're all packed together on this elevator ride. Lord, show me how to handle these family difficulties in a wise and God-honoring way. Well, in the time that we have left, we just set before you just a few ideas right from the life of Jesus that I think really helps us in that direction. First and foremost... I believe Jesus was able to deal with difficult family members because, number one, He prepared for the possibility. You know, all that being misunderstood and all the disbelief and all the ridicule that He got from His family, Jesus wasn't surprised by any of that. That didn't catch Him off guard. Jesus knew up front that there was a chance that some of His family members would not appreciate Him. He knew that before He ever put on skin. Before He ever came to this flesh and stepped foot on this earth. Jesus readied Himself for the very real possibility that His kinfolk would let Him down. And that is exactly why Jesus tells you, and He tells me, and He tells everybody who would wish to follow Him and to be His disciple, that you need to brace yourself for the possibility of some friction. Look with me in Matthew chapter 10, please. In Matthew chapter 10, let's just hear this straight from the source. In Matthew chapter 10, here is a passage that I'm going to guess is not going to be on the front of anybody's Christmas cards this season. In Matthew chapter 10, I'm reading here in verse 34. Matthew 10 verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Verse 35, For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Jesus says sometimes when a person makes the decision to follow me, they profess their allegiance to me and me alone. When I am then brought into that person's family, that is, he or she kind of brings me on to the elevator, watch out. Just watch out. Because civil war is liable to break out. Those family members, they may not share the same convictions. They may not even respect those convictions. They may be downright hostile to those convictions. And guess what? That's going to create some problems for you. And Jesus says, don't be surprised by that. Instead, He goes on, verse 37, He says, whoever loves their father or mother more than me, not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. Aren't you glad that Jesus tells us that up front? That He lets us know right out of the gate what it is that we're getting into and what He expects out of us whenever the going gets tough. I remember a preacher telling one time about, about these two sisters that he had helped to convert and he had baptized them. And the parents of these two girls, they, they just, they weren't having any of this. The parents just right away started causing trouble for those two girls. They did not like the fact that their daughters had obeyed the gospel, been baptized, and so they began to make life very, very hard for those two girls. And almost immediately, I mean, it didn't take long at all, almost immediately, one of those sisters, she renounced that decision to follow Jesus Christ. I regret doing that, and I'm not going to do that anymore. While the other sister, she remained steadfast. She continued faithfully in her service. And the preacher went to that faithful sister, and he was just so, so apologetic. He was saying to her, I am so sorry. Just kind of kept going on and on for two or three minutes about, I'm just so sorry that this has happened to you. I'm so sorry that you're having to deal with this. I'm sorry that all these troubles and problems have come into your family. Until finally that young sister, she said, just stop. Just stop. You don't need to say that. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to apologize. You don't have to try to sugarcoat this and make this better. You don't have to say one word. Because Jesus said that if my family members, if they did not accept me and they did not accept Him then they're not worthy. Now i got to tell you, that's some profound faith coming from a young person. To say that they're not worthy because they don't love the Lord. And that's a painful truth, but it is the truth. Because oftentimes family is actually the last place that you can go to find support to do what's right. Look at Mark chapter 6, please. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes to His hometown once again. And once again, he does not get the hero's welcome. Look at the reception that he gets and then listen to Jesus' response. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, Mark 6 verse 3, the people said, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't these his sisters here with us? This guy's not anything special. He's a nobody. And they took offense at him. Verse 4, So Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus says sometimes, sometimes family doesn't give you what you need. Sometimes they will just let you down. And guess what? Don't be surprised when that happens. Don't be caught off guard by that. Jesus tells us that we need to come to grips with this reality so that we are then prepared to deal with it when it happens. And one of the very most important ways that Jesus dealed with these kinds of difficulties in His family was secondly, that He didn't try to force a change in His family members. 
What Jesus knew was that you cannot twist people's arm and you cannot force people to change. You cannot force people into the kingdom of God. And so guess what? Jesus never tried to do that. Look at Matthew chapter 10 again, please. In Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus is about to send out the twelve apostles, He's going to give them some instructions about some things they need to do, some things that they need not to do. In Matthew chapter 10, this is verse 12. In Matthew 10 verse 12, He says to them, He says... As you enter a house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Verse 14 now. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or that town. Jesus says, if folks don't want the gospel, if they don't want me, if they're not interested in that, maybe they're just completely militant against that, You need to shake off the dust of your feet and you need to just leave. Don't stay there. Don't try to coerce those people. Don't try to manipulate them. Don't try to force them to accept something that they don't want. If they don't want it, they don't want it. And it doesn't do any good to try to force and ramrod a change. Have you ever given any thought to the fact that if Jesus could not force His family to share His convictions and to do what was right, what in the world makes us think that we can with our family? Do we really think that we're going to do something that the Lord was not able to do? Make no mistake about it. Christians are here upon this earth to share and to lead and to invite and to influence. All of that is very important. But listen to me very carefully. We are not here to push. And sometimes I am afraid that our desire to bring a change about in our loved ones, sometimes that desire is so strong. We want them to do what's right more than anybody else in the world. Sometimes that desire is so strong that we end up speaking when we should have been silent. We end up being harsh when we should have been very gentle. We end up pushing when we should have been setting a quiet example. In fact, isn't that what Peter says over in 1 Peter the third chapter? about the believing wife being able to affect a change in an unbelieving husband, that's not accomplished by force. That's not accomplished by her nagging and pestering or berating or guilt trips. No, 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 no. That is the result of respectful and pure conduct. That is the result of a gentle and quiet spirit, Peter says. 1 Peter 3, verses 1-4. through Sometimes what we need to do with our family... We just need to back off. We just need to take a step back. We need to quit trying to fix everybody. And we need to just let our light shine. And I'm just going to be the good example that the Lord wants me to be. And I'll just hope and I'll pray that by God's grace and by God's love, they will be changed. But you know, for as much as Jesus didn't try to force a change in His family members, it needs to be pointed out thirdly, that Jesus didn't allow His family members to change Him. Now, I want to be very clear with this point. I am not suggesting that we want to be so close-minded that we never accept fault for the things that we do. We don't want to be so close-minded that we never admit our wrong and our shortcomings. We don't want to be that person. In fact, if we're talking about difficult people on the elevator, the difficult person might be me. Maybe I need to be looking in the mirror and I'm the one that needs to be making some changes. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is when you know By the Word of God, you know that you are right. And you're doing what's right. And you are right exactly where God wants you to be. My friend, don't move. 
Don't you budge an inch. Don't let your love and your desire and affection for your family members move you away from doing what is right in the sight of God. Jesus never did that. And I am sure that Jesus wanted His family to accept Him wholeheartedly. I'm sure that Jesus wanted His family to believe and to trust in Him. But you know what? Jesus never allowed them to change Him. Jesus kept doing the will of God despite their unbelief. In Luke the 14th chapter, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus then makes it clear that He expects that same kind of devotion and commitment from those who would be His followers. In Luke 14, in one of the great discipleship statements of Jesus in verse 26, in Luke 14 verse 26, Jesus says there, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Notice people have trouble with that verse. What? I'm supposed to hate my mother? Hate my father? Really? No, not in the way that you think. What Jesus means is that that love is less for father and mother than what it is for the Lord. In fact, if you could maybe even put those two loves on some kind of a scale, then the difference between your love for Christ and the love that you have for your parents and for your family, the difference there, it would just be so great. The distance would be so wide that it would be really like the difference between love and hate. That there's just this great chasm between those two kinds of love. And what Jesus says here is He says, your love for me, it needs to just be unmatched. It must be an unrivaled love that nothing else even comes close to that. And so as much as I love my wife, it cannot hold a candle to the love that I must have for Jesus. As much as I love my daughter, it cannot compare to the love that I have for Jesus. My commitment to Him must be unaltered undeterred, unswayed by any earthly relationship. And yes, that includes family members. That is the depth of commitment that the Lord is calling for from us. That I am so steadfast in my service to Him that no parent, no child, no sibling, no cousin, no anybody, they can change my relationship to Jesus my Christ and my Lord. I should say as well here that Jesus dealt with those difficult family members fourthly in that He didn't make it His mission to please them. I want to say this very, very candidly. If your mission is to please people, then you will always be in bondage to those people's opinions. You know, when I first started preaching, I'm pretty sure that I was a slave to other people's opinions. If somebody thought that my preaching wasn't quite as good as brother so-and-so over here, I wanted to be like brother so-and-so over here. If somebody came to me and they said, hey Josh, you need to be doing more of this in your preaching, what would I do? I would do more of this. And hey Josh, you need to be doing not so much of that in your preaching. I would try to do not so much of that. But you know what? After a little bit of time and a little bit of age and a little bit of experience got on me, I come to realize that there is no way at all that I can please all of those masters. And what I came to realize is I really needed to just focus on pleasing one master. The only master, and that of course, is God. And that's what Jesus did. Would you find John? In John chapter 8, in John chapter 8, 
Jesus, as He addresses the audience in the temple, He's talked about being the light of the world. And He's beginning to wrap up that little discourse He says in verse 29. In John chapter 8 and verse 29, Jesus says that He who sent Me is with Me. He has not left Me alone. Notice this. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. That's what Jesus made His life all about. Pleasing Him. And the Father made known from heaven that He was pleased with His Son. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized? The voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that's what it needs to be about for us. That we're about pleasing God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, Paul says there that whether we are at home or whether we are away, we make it our aim, our goal, our intention is to please Him. In fact, would you step out of the Gospels for a second? Look in Galatians 1. I want to show you this passage. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul actually says right here that when you try to be a people pleaser, whether that's you're trying to please people in the church, or whether you're trying to please people out in the world, or whether you're trying to please people in your own family, Paul says you're going to end up running into a brick wall. There's going to be a problem with that. In Galatians chapter 1, this is verse 10. In Galatians 1 verse 10, Paul asks, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? Notice this, notice this answer. If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. When we're all consumed with making people happy, Paul says you're not going to be able to be who you're supposed to be as a Christian. That your service to Jesus, it's going to be hindered. And as much as I know we would all like to be able to please and to gain the approval of others, especially our family members, in the grand scheme of things, that is unimportant. In the grand scheme of things, that is irrelevant. And we must never make that our goal in life to please them. We're about pleasing the Father. Which leads me to this fifth observation from the life of Jesus. And that is that even when Jesus' family members treated Him wrong, Jesus never retaliated at their mistreatment. Would you step out of the Gospels again? Look in 1 Peter, please, in 1 Peter 2. This is not in the Gospels, but it is a passage about Jesus. And we often read these verses and we think about the abuse that Jesus received from His enemies, His crucifiers, and and that's right. But don't forget that in that picture in your mind, that you can actually also include some of Jesus' own family in that picture. And so Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is verse 21, Peter says, therefore, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Jesus did not retaliate. Jesus did not trade barbs. But have you ever considered the fact that really if anybody, if anybody could have chosen the exact right words to just dress somebody down, if anybody with just the most perfect skill and precision could have said something that would have just brought those people to their knees, it would have been Jesus. But He didn't do that. Maybe what we ought to learn from Jesus is that sometimes we're just going to have to take it on the chin. That's not fun to have to say, but sometimes that's just what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to grin and bear it. 
And I know that oftentimes we feel justified, especially when it's family. We feel justified. They shouted to me, I'm going to shout back at them. I'm going to do to them what they did to me. You know what, if you can't fight with your family, well, who can you fight with? We feel very justified in that. And I understand that temptation. But we have been called, Peter says, to look at the example of Jesus, verse 21, so that we might follow in His steps. You bite your tongue. You count to ten. You say a prayer. You do whatever it takes. Because Jesus endured the mistreatment of His family and the mistreatment of others. And He simply entrusted Himself to God that God's going to take care of all of that. We must develop that same attitude of heart. All of that then leads me to this final point this morning. And in fact, this is where I've been wanting to go the entire lesson. Maybe the most important thing for you to take away from this sermon. That Jesus was able to deal with His difficult relatives because finally, Jesus knew who true family was. If you go back to Mark chapter 3 again, in Mark chapter 3, we're going to bring all of this to a climax. And this is a passage, I don't know. I get emotional. The older I get, the more I read this passage. <clears throat> in Mark chapter 3, remember a little bit earlier in the chapter, his family members, they had come seeking him. He's out of his mind. We need to put him in a straitjacket and take him home. Bless his heart. He's just so pitiful. The story resumes down in verse 31. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers, they're outside. They're seeking you, Jesus. He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister, my mother. What is true family? Is it those folks that you get on the elevator with? No. I'm not on there long enough for them to even get to know me, whether they can decide whether they like me or they hate me. What is true family? Is it those people who you share the last name with and you are involved in this short journey here on earth with? Is that true family? Well, not necessarily. According to Jesus, true family are the people who do God's will. They are the people who I will spend eternity with. That is true family. Now listen to me carefully. I am not trying to diminish the value of our earthly physical families. God is very pro-family. That's evident all throughout the Scriptures. But do any of you remember, do any of you remember the rope illustration? Those of you who were here a few years ago, you may remember the rope illustration. Here's this rope, and let's imagine this rope, it just represents eternity. It represents the thousands upon thousands upon millions and millions of years that just goes on and on. Just this long existence just goes on forever. But imagine, here at the beginning of that rope, there's this little, this little dot, this little black spot. And that little dot, what that represents, is that represents your time here on this earth. 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, whatever the Lord allows you to live on this earth. Do you think, do you really think, that after we have been in heaven for 10,000 years, do you think that you're really going to look at that little black dot and you're going to say, hey guys, do you see that dot? That was the whole time that I spent on earth. And you know what? That little sliver of that dot, 
That was my earthly family. Those were the days. Do you think that's what you're going to say? No, it is not. Family is who you are going to be spending all of that eternity with. And I'm going to tell you, I want, I want my daddy to be in that family. I want my mama to be in that family. And by the grace of God, at this point in time, they are. And I want my brother Luke and Aaron and Ben, I want them to be in that family. I want Tiffany to be in that family. And by the grace of God, they are. I want Hattie to be in that family. I want all of my earthly relatives in that family. But if they don't serve Jesus, they are not my family. And I know that that's going to sound harsh to some people and some people are going to take that the wrong way. But Jesus says that true family are the ones that you're going to be with eternally. And when you have been with the people of God forever and ever and ever and ever, you're just not going to look back at all those people who you were with for that long down on earth, people who never cared one bit about God or about Jesus Christ, and you're going to say, oh, now that's my family. No, they are not. And that is why Jesus says emphatically here that we need to get a lock on who true family is. And once we get a lock on who that family is, we need to lean into that family. This needs to be our identity of who and what we are. And i got to tell you, it's been my observation over the last couple of years that those who have unfortunately been brought up in difficult circumstances, they had just rotten upbringings because maybe their mother or their father just wasn't worth nothing as a parent. Maybe they had just ungodly siblings growing up. I'm going to tell you, those folks, when they come to the Lord, they understand what Jesus is talking about here. They get it. I remember sitting in this assembly a little over a year ago now, I think it was. And I remember there was a young man in this assembly. And he sat and he wept openly while we observed the Lord's Supper. And he was weeping, thinking about what God had done for him and how far the Lord had brought him. And I went to him after services because I didn't know what the upsetness was all about. And I asked him, hey, are, are you okay? I wanted to make sure there was something, something going on that I didn't know about. And he said to me, oh, I'm very okay. Those were tears of joy. He said, I just got to thinking about all that the Lord has done for me. I didn't have a real family growing up. My mother was a drug addict. My father was in jail. I just kind of floated from here. I never had a real family in the true sense of the word. Then I found the Lord. I became a Christian. And He gave me a family. And now as a result of that, I have a father. He has adopted me into this family. He cares for me. And He provides for me. And He sustains me. And He leads me. And I have an elder brother in Jesus who saves me. And He strengthens me. And He mediates on my behalf each day. And I have brothers and sisters. Too many to even count or to even know by name. And they encourage me. And they admonish me. And they walk with me throughout this life. I have a family. I'm here to say to you this morning that when your earthly family fails you, when they hurt you, when they let you down, I want you to remember what Jesus said here in Mark chapter 3. Here is my brother. Here is my sister. Here is my mother. Those who do the will of God, that, that is true family.
Now let me close with one final passage. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, you know the scene here. When those disciples, when they are in the city of Jerusalem, and they are waiting according to the instructions that Jesus had given to them, He's ascended back into heaven, He's told them to stay there and to wait. We're told in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, I think this is amazing, that these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brothers. See it there? Jesus' brothers. Those same ones who misunderstood Him. Those same ones who didn't believe in Him. Those same ones who had given Him just a hard time. Jesus' difficult family members, even they, eventually, they got on board. They ended up becoming pillars in the early church. The very ones who pitied Him, they now praise Him. The ones who mocked Him, they now serve Him. And I think much of that change that was brought about in their lives, it had to do with the way that Jesus dealt with them. The way that He worked with them. The way that He just continued to set the perfect example for them. As one writer put it, Jesus gave them space and God gave them grace. Jesus helps us with our earthly families, doesn't He? What do you think about God's family? talked about what I think about God's family a few moments ago. I should tell you, it's not perfect. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not perfect. Our Father is perfect. Our elder brother Jesus is perfect. But the rest of us are very imperfect. The question I want to ask right now is, are you interested in taking an elevator ride with the rest of us? This elevator is going to one place, one direction. We are bound for heaven. And we want you to come too. We want you to get, it'll be crowded in here, but we want you to get on board. If you have never submitted to Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, you have the opportunity to do that this morning through an obedient faith. You do that, you'll become a Christian. The Lord will then add you to His wonderful family. If you are in the family, but you've not been living as you ought to, not living a life that pleases the Father, then brother or sister, you need to come back to the Lord. You need to repent. You need to pray to Him that He will forgive you, and He will. You can resume your place in this family. It may just simply be this morning that it's not a sin issue, but it may just be that you just need some special prayers and some special encouragement. It may be that you are a little bit withdrawn and disconnected from this family. Can we help to draw you into the core, brother or sister? Whatever it is that we can do for you. If we can help anyone in any way to be right with God, then we implore you through the words of this song. Come to the front while we stand and while we sing.